But even the internal job, the client is always outside. So in a system, I serve you. So if I am a central function, I serve you, who might be the board, and you serve the client. And the client has clients. So I always see the whole chain of value creation or the chain that really matters. And that chain always ends with my clients who are outside and their clients. I don't even stop at my clients. I even continue thinking of that chain. So if I am a compliance officer, my question is, how can I become a valuable contribution to the whole chain by making compliance work? Welcome to the Innovation and in Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm thrilled to have with me Simon Severino. You will discover that he is unfortunately not from the great state of Texas, but don't worry. He's got a lot to bring to the topic today. So first of all, Simon, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Hello, Tom. Hello, Texas. Simon, you are our first guest who attended the University of Vienna. So could you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah. So in my 20s, I had only one obsession, understand the whole thing before I go into any of the parts. And later on, I understood that that's actually a very good strategy. And so I did not study any of the parts. I did study philosophy first. So let's look at the whole thing. And then if I get it, what this whole thing is, then I might find my contribution in one of the single elements of it. And my contribution in the single elements was then to be a business coach. And later on, I became a business coach in a global consultancy. And 20 years later, I run my own consultancy. When did you found your own consultancy and what is its name? The name is Strategist Prince. And it's now decades that I'm doing this on my own. And Strategist Print became a method. So the problem that I had with in the projects that I was leading we had to come up with a strategy. So what's the right thing to do in terms of go-to-market strategy? What's the right thing to do and how do we do it the proper way? These are the two main questions. The first one, we have some pretty good tools to analyze what's going on and how to enter a market and how to align a team. But the second part, I was actually missing the tools because the execution in most projects that I was in was slow. There were a ton of delays and too many people involved and the momentum was gone. So most teams wouldn't be like a sports team. I see your helmets up there. A sports team is always on fire. We have our goal in front of us. We have quick steps. Everybody is aligned and there is a real-time communication around progress. I was missing that for executive teams. So how do you run an executive team that has that kind of spirit and that kind of organization that is in flow, that is aligned, that has fun, that is quick in deciding, and that gets feedback quickly. And since the executive team is removed from the market, they don't have closed loops. So I was like, how do we, can we create that? And for the last 15 years, I've been obsessed with just building that. So how can an executive team have an agile way of doing things so that it feels like a sports team? And that's what I've been building. And that's 
Now the strategy sprint method and the strategy sprint company and the strategy sprint product, which is 90 days coaching of executive teams. Simon, many of the listeners to this podcast are in a different operational field than yourself. And that is their in-house corporate compliance officers and in-house corporate legal officers. And one of the reasons I was so intrigued to have you on this podcast is because in researching you, your company and strategy sprints, it struck me that the strategies you will help a company employ is to increase their customer base. Well, the customer base for a compliance officer is their own employees. And so I was wondering if you could help us understand what a strategy sprint is and how you're able to maintain that speed and enthusiasm at the senior executive or even corporate level. Allow me to push back a little bit that the customer is internally, because my thesis is, and we can discuss this, but my thesis is that the customer is never internally. So if you have a central function, IT, legal, compliance, HR, finance, these are all central functions, right? Functions that report to board and that have an internal job to do. But even the internal job, the client is always outside. So in a system, I serve you. So if I am a central function, I serve you who might be the board and you serve the client and the client has clients. So I always see the whole chain of value creation or the chain that really matters And that chain always ends with my clients who are outside and their clients. I don't even stop at my clients. I even continue thinking of that chain. So if I am a compliance officer, my question is, how can I become a valuable contribution to the whole chain by making compliance work? So I will analyze, okay, what are the problems? It's maybe saving time in being compliant or understanding what even matters in being compliant. And then there are many ramifications. I could become the strategy partner of the board and become a business partner. That's actually a term that in the last 10 years has become mainstream, that whatever your function, your internal function is, especially in the US, you always see yourself as a business partner of your internal colleagues. And everybody serves you, them, everybody serves the client out there. Many compliance professionals are very comfortable with the idea of the number of parties in the supply chain, your direct supplier, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth level suppliers. But we don't talk about what you just said, and I'm going to try to read it correctly, the chain of value creation in compliance. We think about exactly the question I posed to you, which is the internal customers or employees, but you're advocating, if I got this right, to look at every customers, customers to the very end. Did I get that right? Totally. So for example, I'm working with most of the big brands that you know right now. If you are one of the top four, let's say auditors, you know, the big four auditors out there, and you have your compliance officers, your clients here, compliance officers. Now, what kind of company would you be if you are not compliant? You're just out of the game. So there is a contribution which is very important. And that's the value, the value part. The value part is making it easy and making it smooth to be compliant and stay compliant at any time without creating friction in what everybody else needs to do. Operations need to do operations. Board needs to do strategic decisions and vision and hiring and firing. 
So my contribution is the compliance department or the compliance officer can be, I make sure that we are compliant and stay compliant. Plus, I take away from everybody else the complexity or even have to think about compliance because I bake it into their processes so that they just do it and they don't even have to think that extra step. They just are compliant. That can be an immense contribution. Could I take your concept of chain of value creation and maybe rephrase it in the way that the Business Roundtable did in their statement on the purpose of a corporation, that they are not just shareholders, they are multiple stakeholders in an organization. Obviously, that can include shareholders, but it can include employees, it can include third parties, it can include the localities where a corporation may be doing business, it could include customers, and it could include others. It really sounds like you're helping people understand there's a much richer and wider, I'm going to say, opportunity to influence either through sales, through compliance, through the corporate functions you've talked about. With that sort of number of stakeholders, some people call it purpose plus profits, whatever you may call it, it's looking beyond simply just making money for the shareholders. Definitely. The teacher of my teacher was Peter Drucker, who is a Viennese, by the way, in Austria, from Vienna. And he said, there are basically three philosophies that you can organize yourself around as a company. You can organize around shareholders, around stakeholders, who basically is everybody, and then around the client. And he would highly recommend to organize around the client because that's the chain of value creation. This is where the cash flow comes back. And that's the most vital loop. So you can go also to stakeholder philosophy, but then you have so many people that you're trying to serve. It gets kind of wishy-washy because who are you really here to serve? If you think of the best teams and the best companies out there right now, think of Amazon. Who are they here to serve? You will never think of shareholders in that context. You will never think of stakeholders. They're not serving everybody. They are serving the customer. They're serving you when you need the helmet and you order it and you will get it tomorrow. It's very clear who they are here to serve and who they organize around. They organize around the user, the client, to save time, to save friction. And that's baked in every single moment of their day. And you feel it as a user, you feel it as an investor, you feel it. They even have rituals and very specific things that they do. For example, their own table, their own desks, they are so cheap that you would say, why does a publicly traded company have these kind of cheap desks? And they say, because we organize around our clients. If we can cut costs anywhere, we do it. And we put it in operations. The focusing on the client, I'd like to stay with that for a moment, because one of the criticisms of an internal corporate function, such as compliance or legal or, or IT, is that you're a cost center. You're not a profit center. And by focusing on clients, it seems to me you actually get to focus not on the bottom line, but actually on the top line, because you're talking about income, revenue, profits, et cetera, so that then you become you know, a business generator. First of all, is that a fair assessment or a fair critique? And second, do you have those conversations and do people really understand the difference in what it means to increase your revenue as opposed just to save costs? That's a great question. So yes, ideally, we will have all departments being profit centers, not cost centers. 
And in some industries and in some sectors, it works. Now, in many, it doesn't. So what do you do if you can't generate value, as you say, if you can't generate business? If you really can't, okay, you tried, you didn't find the path to that. Well, then become at least the business partner of your direct internal, I don't call it client, to your internal partner so that you both serve the outside client best. And so that might be a cost center, which actually tracks cost reduction, time and friction reduction. Like you can even track, for example, if I'm a central function, I might say, hey, you are sales. My contribution to you is you are doing only sales. And that's my main contribution. And that's worth, insert dollar amount here per month, because you can concentrate on sales. You don't have to think about compliance. You don't have to think about HR. You don't have to think about your IT. So that's my contribution. Actually, I am part of the profit of sales since I am here to take away from them everything that is not sales. That would be a distraction for them. If they have to study low books, then you are definitely sabotaging your sales team. So you do it for them. You select the few things that they need to take care of. You bake them into their operations. You have done now a contribution in the sales work. I should have stopped when you mentioned this name, but I'm going to have to stop now because we have to spend a few minutes on Peter Drucker. I was introduced to Peter Drucker in the 70s, studied management philosophy, and my uncle suggested that I study Drucker. In my opinion, he's as relevant today as he was 50 years ago. So I was wondering if you could say a few words about who Peter Drucker was and how you think he still speaks to us really today. I agree with you. So Peter Drucker's work is relevant today as it always was. And my whole work is Peter Drucker's philosophy plus agile methods for the digital age, because we just need to bring it into the world we live in, which is a bit different. But the fundamentals, what he did is he was the first person on the planet to say that management is actually an own craft. It's an own thing. It's a thing. He said management is a thing. That was the first definition. Second definition, it can be learned. Third definition, since it can be learned, it can be thought. So that was his thing. And he studied it. He understood it. He created a model around it, what it is, what is management, actually. And out of that, he created a plethora of insights. One is how you should organize a company. We just talked about that. The second is how you should organize each part of the company. And so every single book of him is amazing and is really worth reading today, 2022. It's a very sane philosophy, very practical philosophy of what management is. He created many definitions that we use every day without knowing it. For example, the word effectiveness and efficiency. That was his thing. He said, what's the right thing to do? And he said at the beginning, what is strategy? What's the right thing to do? And how do we do it the right way? That's Peter Drucker. So what's the right thing to do? That's effectiveness. And how do we do it the best way? That's efficiency. And he created the clarity around these concepts that he's not always quoted about nowadays anymore. Because many people in this generation listening right now, they didn't meet him anymore. But my teacher was in his classes and many people that we know were his scholars or had the pleasure to be in his classes. And that was a very pivotal definition. Management is a practice. Management is an own craft. 
it's made of a set of principles and behaviors that you can actually operationalize in a company. Then what's the right thing to organize and what's the wrong way to organize a company? And then never go optimize anything, efficiency, before you have checked the effectiveness question. Is it the right thing to do? For example, many productivity programs, coaches right now, they talk about making stuff faster, like shortcuts on your computer or whatever, right? Or clustering tasks because they increase the efficiency of a task. And he was a genius when he said, the worst thing you can do is to pick something that is the wrong thing to do and to optimize it. So spend more time on effectiveness, finding out what's the right thing to do in the first place. And you can even skip efficiency if you want, because that's much more important. 80% should be what's the right thing to do. So you've written a book entitled Strategy Sprints. So could you tell us a little bit about that book, where we can purchase it, and what the reader would garner or gain from reading it? Yeah, so it's the continuation of that question. If you're an executive team, if you run a company, what's the right thing to do, and how do you do it the right way? But it's in the modern age. So it's right now, it's the digital situation with broken supply chains, with markets that are volatile and uncertain. How do you take decisions under those conditions? That's the book. Each chapter is one big question, like how to run operations, how to do marketing, how to do sales, how to do hiring, how to do client onboarding. It literally shares the practical case studies and the blueprints and the checklists for readers to do it on their own. Are you in Vienna currently? I'm in Vienna. So I have to assume many of your clients are European or other parts of the world other than the United States. 80% California, 10% London, Berlin, 10% Singapore, Shanghai. One of the ways I think business changed forever after the Russian invasion of Ukraine was in this area of supply chain. Now, that wasn't just a one-time event. Obviously, we had a worldwide pandemic which impacted supply chains, and then the Russian invasion, we lost access, and then export control sanctions came in. Are you having those types of conversations with clients of how to reorient their supply chains literally on the fly and give them the resilience needed for the next black swan event? 100%. And as a strategy work is always that. Scenarios, what's coming? What's the base assumption, the base case? And what are tail risks? What could happen in the fringe possibility of China attacking Taiwan? What could happen in the fringe possibility of a pandemic event? This is something that you always do as a strategy advisor. And in this case, yes, since the pandemic, we are talking about how to change the contracts that you have. And then here again, compliance, legal, very important business partners. If I am a CEO or a COO and I am thinking about, hey, how do we renegotiate contracts now to be more resilient, to have less risk on our side, or to have at least 50-50 risk, 50% on our side and 50% on the supplier's side? Because I don't want to have the costs per month if they don't deliver. And so we are talking a lot about how to renegotiate contracts, both on a psychological level and on a legal level terms, so that you de-risk, that you split the risk and that you turn fixed costs into variable costs so that you can be much more resilient and also to mitigate the risk of parts not being delivered, of you not being able to operate in a specific 
environment. Right now, yes, every U.S. company that's operating globally, that's what we are discussing since, since years now. What happens if you have to shut down your Shanghai operations? What happens if the dollar spikes up, which makes every other country stop exports or decide to switch currency, which is happening right now? These were tail risks. Three years ago, you would find it in our scenario planning as a tail risk, very small probability that a country changes the currency they are dealing in. But it happened. So we were prepared. So you have now intrigued two of my interests, risk management and legal, because for my sins, I'm a lawyer as well. But your comments around the changing or reallocating of risk in the supply chain, I try to talk about these concepts in the terms of risk management, and that when you have new information through ongoing monitoring, you can move to continuous improvement through more effective risk management strategies. And if I could tie that to the contract part, which which you you also said, moving from a fixed cost to a variable cost, is there an example you could give us of that? Sure. So I was inspired by a book by Nicolas Nassim Taleb. It's called Skin in the Game. He says, hey, people, why do you take 100% of the risk? Could you split it 50-50 with the market? And I loved the idea. It shook everything. I applied it to every single contract that I have with every supplier's. We are now 50-50 in risk management. So risk management is the highest art form when you run a business because everything is risk-reward ratio. There is nothing else than that. You have to decide constantly without enough facts because there are no facts about the future. So there is no number. There are only probabilities. So you have to become very good at weighted probabilities. What's the probability of this versus that? How do we decide based on that? How do we visualize it so that we can also explain our decision later and why we took that in written, because that's what you need when you run a a corporation. So probabilities and risk management. One example is you hire a PR firm and you say, all right, you get 5,000 bucks per month, bring me into the New York Times. That's one way of having a contract. Another way of having a contract would be, hello, PR agencies, we will select one of you and We want the one that can lend us in. Inc. Magazine, we pay for that 4K. In Wall Street Journal, we pay for that 10K. And in the New York Times, we pay for that 40K. Now, show me a plan. How much time does it take? How will you do that? And then you pick them. Now you have de-risked that contract 100% because you will only pay if it happens. Same thing you can do with basic material suppliers from China. Same thing you can do before you launch a product. Elon Musk is a genius. I think he is not enough seen for many things that he does very practically. He never builds a car in terms of risk management. He never builds a car before the car is sold. Everybody else, you know, General Motors, they put in 200 million and then they build the cars and then they hope that they sell them. That's the way people build cars nowadays. And if you look at CNN, what was it, CNN Plus? They wasted 300 millions first, then they launched it, and then they stopped it. That's on the one side of the spectrum, how to not do risk management. And how to do risk management is you put on a landing page. That's a prototype. Before you spend $1 into building anything, you test it 
and you split 50-50 the risk with everybody out there. So what Elon Musk does every time, before he creates a car, he builds a landing page with just an image. And he says, do you want this? Maybe I build it if enough of you put skin in the game by sending 25,000 right now. Click here. Send the money. Maybe I build it. Maybe in two years. Maybe. But now click. And so if enough people click, then he builds it. These are examples of how you de-risk or split the risk. There was a U.S. auto executive who tried to do that many years ago. His name was John DeLorean. And that's how he tried to finance the DeLorean. Fascinating. Simon, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, strategy sprints, or really any of the topics we've touched on this podcast, what would be the best place for them to go? Strategysprints.com is where you can find a ton of information, free resources on scenario planning, on strategic planning, and how to prioritize tasks for teams and align teams. And if you want to go deeper, check Strategy Sprints, the book on Amazon. And I've got to, you did, I don't think, really give enough credit to your website. There are a ton of resources available free that will give people a much broader and deeper appreciation of many of the topics we've touched on this podcast. So I want to acknowledge you for having some great resources on your website as well. And I, for one, hope we can continue this conversation. Yeah, totally. Let's do it in a year and see what these strategic scenarios are then. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.